0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, how are you folks? What's going on? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing okay, wherever you are. Today on the program, my guest is Lan Samantha Chang, author of the new novel, The Family Chow.
1: Well, I was really stuck on everything. I was obsessed with the Brothers Karamazov. I started reading it in 2005 and had never read it and became obsessed with it and encouraged my students here at Iowa to meet me after Thanksgiving break like two times, two different years and talk about it. It got to the point where I'd internalized the book. So when Jonathan, that was his name, mentioned this to me about writing work that was modeled on other works, I thought, ooh, I could do that.
0: That was Lan Samantha Chang, author of the new novel, The Family Chow, available now from W.W. Norton & Company. Lan Samantha Chang is also the director of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. She is the first Asian-American and the first woman to hold that distinction. Her other books include the story collection Hunger, a novel called Inheritance, and another novel called All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost. The Family Chow is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the TNB Book Club. For those of you who are new to the show, the NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community founded in 2006, It is now edited by Joseph Grantham, who also doubles as this podcast's social media director. The Nervous Breakdown has its own monthly book club. Here's how it works. You sign up and you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this program. For more information, please visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. So the family chow. The new book by Lan Samantha Chang, it is in part an homage to Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. It is at once a family drama detailing the coming together and the falling apart of a Chinese-American family in a small Midwestern town. It is a story of siblings. There are love story subplots, relationships. It is a story of immigration and assimilation, and in this particular part of its telling, I found The Family Chow to be heartbreaking and funny and subversive and unexpected. The Family Chow is also a crime drama. It's a murder mystery. So there's a lot going on, and my conversation with Lan Samantha Chang is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Dutton, publisher of Small World, the new novel by best-selling author Jonathan Evison. Small World is an epic novel set against such iconic backdrops as the California Gold Rush, the development of the Transcontinental Railroad, and on board a speeding train full of modern-day strangers forced together by fate. Small World is a grand entertainment that asks big questions. It chronicles 170 years of American nation-building from numerous points of view across place and across time. The end result is a historical epic with a Dickensian flair, a grand entertainment that asks whether our nation has made good on its promises. That's Small World, the new novel by Jonathan Evison, available now from Dutton. So I do need to thank some listeners for pre-ordering my new novel It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's due out in May. Thank you to Gene Morgan, Justin Benton, Valerie Bean, D.A. Hosek, Brent Ryden, and Kevin Rainovix. I appreciate it, you guys. Thank you so much. You will be getting a note from me and another people sticker in the mail if it hasn't happened already. So for those of you who are new to the program, I have a book coming out. It's a work of autofiction. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you pre-order it, I would be grateful. Just go to bradlisty.com. It's all right there. You can use whatever online bookseller you prefer. And uh, I've been giving regular updates in the monologue on the publication process or the pre-publication process over the past several episodes. And it occurs to me now that I don't think I've ever told you guys what the book is about. I don't think I've done that. And it's obviously something that I'm going to have to be doing as I get to publication and start doing a few interviews and so on. So I'll give it a quick shot. The novel is again, a work of auto fiction. So it's very much about me. It's about my family. It is a book that I think at its core Is about the act of creation, meaning the creation of art, of literature, and it's a novel that is about its own making. It's also about procreation, not the, like not the actual act of procreation, but just the making of a family, and the joys and the challenges and the heartbreaks that can often accompany that process. And it's about the philosophical questions that surround these things. It is about my family experience, my wife and kids, and in particular my son, who, as many of you know, was born with some disabilities. So if I had to sum it up, I think ultimately it is a novel that is about creation, set against a backdrop of grief and some existential confusion and some urban and ecological unrest. It's about making art and making a family in our fallen world and what that might mean and why it might matter. And I tried to make it funny as much as I possibly could because obviously it deals with some heavy stuff. And ultimately it is a work of fiction which is, I found, the only way that I could write it because I don't have a good enough memory. I don't keep a diary or anything like that. And I wanted to write a book that would be readable, which <laughs> which is always a nice idea. And I found that I needed to fictionalize in order to make that happen. I think back to my recent conversation on this program with Mike DiCapity, the author of the novel Jacket Weather, and how he was talking about wanting his books to be a nice place for the reader to be, which I think is a very nice way of putting it. And it's a shared aspiration. I mean, aren't we all trying to do that as writers? I think we should be. My book deals with some difficult subject matter, but I tried to make it a nice place for readers to be and whether or not I succeeded at that, I suppose, is up to each individual reader. So if you want to find out for yourself, And if you want to take a deep dive into my psyche, this is your opportunity. One more time, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. To pre-order, just go to bradlisty.com. I also, quickly, I want to plug my email newsletter. I keep forgetting to do this. I do a weekly email newsletter. Did you know that? It's once a week. That's it. That's all. It's simple. It's hopefully a little bit helpful. If you want to sign up, you can do so over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at bradlisty.com. There's just a newsletter link in the left sidebar. You'll see it. It's a simple newsletter. I share a link to the latest episode each week, and I also share some links to some things that I'm finding interesting. Okay? Okay. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, let's get to the main event. My guest, once again, is Lan Samantha Chang. Her new novel is called The Family Chow. It is the official February pick of the TNB Book Club and is available now from W.W. Norton and Company. It was an absolute delight to meet Sam and to talk with her about her new book and about her life and her work in Iowa City at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lan Samantha Chang, and her new novel, One More Time, is called The Family Chow.
1: The first start of this book happened in 2005 when I was stuck after my previous book and accidentally somehow started writing in the present tense, which is something that I had always told my students not to do. For... What are logical reasons? The reader is not experiencing the world unfolding as they read. And so then the present tense doesn't exist, right? This is what I always thought. But what do you know? I started writing in the present tense and it was a real pleasure. And so I wrote maybe 100 pages and it it had a kind of Midwestern setting, In a town, there was a tyrannical father figure named at that time Big Peter. There was a son named Ming, uh, who always thought that he knew what was best for everyone in the family. There was a daughter, and then there was another son. And there was something about it that really entertained me. I thought parts of it were funny. I remember reading part of it at the Napa Valley Writers Conference, and Yun Lee was there on the faculty at the time, and she thought it was funny and told me about it and laughed during the reading. But really, after I finished about 100 pages of it, I realized that there was nowhere that it was going You know, it just wasn't going anywhere. So I put it aside, and around then I moved to Iowa City, took up this job.
0: And I should interrupt you and uh, let listeners know you are the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop.
1: That's right. Then the following year, I had a child in 2007, and so I was just really not going to be doing a lot of writing for a while. And then I finished another book, a really short book that I wasn't expecting, and got stuck again in my in-between phase. And this one was really bad because I was so busy at work and at home that I didn't have time to think about anything at all. So years passed, like years passed where I wasn't really getting work done. And then sometime in 2013, I was in the office with a student having a thesis conference and they were showing me a new work that was sort of modeled on Ford, Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier with a very twisty, turny, unreliable first person narrator and you know, questions about what's really happening, what did happen. And he said, I love to write projects, or I always write projects that are modeled on other works. He said, it just works for me. And I thought, ding, maybe I should <laughs> do this. Maybe I should do this. Because what I failed to say was, well, I was really stuck on everything. I was obsessed with the Brothers Karamazov. I started reading it in 2005. And I was, you know, 40 at the time and had never read it and became obsessed with it and encouraged my students here at Iowa to meet me after Thanksgiving break, like two times, two different years and talk about it. They got Thanksgiving break to read the novel. Then we would meet and have, you know, these conversations. It was like a book club. And sometimes they went for six hours. You know, we would have two three-hour conversations about the book, I couldn't get enough of the book. It got to the point where I'd internalized the book. So when Jonathan, that was his name, mentioned this to me about writing work that was modeled on other works, I thought, ooh, I could do that because I had noticed well, I was working that the first two-thirds or so of the Brothers Kermatov takes place over only a few days. And there's an unfolding quality to it that fascinated me. In fact, I had done little craft talks on so many of these issues. Unfold, I had done a craft talk on the word unfold. I had gotten really obsessed with things that were written in two parts, including Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground Um, Because, you know, you always read about narratives being in three parts, beginning, middle and end. So I thought I could use the present tense and it could unfold in that same way that the first few days of the story in the Brothers Karamazov unfolds. And it would be interesting and fun. And at that moment, I realized that I'd hit upon a project. So it was how many years eight years after I wrote the first hundred pages of this project. And when I went and looked it over, I understood that a lot of the bones of the Brothers Karamazov were in this project. There was the tyrannical father. There was three, you know, the, the, there were three children and there, in the original version that there was this blank space where action should be like dramatic action. And I thought, I can do an homage and see how this all fits in together. I became cowed by the fact that the Brothers Karamazov is one of the great works of world literature and that there was some terrible hubris, I thought, involved in trying to write an homage to it. But ultimately, I started to understand that homages have their own place in literary tradition and that I should just give myself permission to do it. I read a book by Margot Livesey. Margot said that when she wrote The Flight to Gemma Hardy, she didn't read Jane Eyre for years. And I thought, okay, put aside The Brothers Karamazov. How can the book become its own book if I'm constantly reading The Brothers Karamazov?
0: Well, that's what – okay, this is what I wanted to ask you about because I've had this thought, like what a good – what a good way to like land on a plot. If you're struggling to find a story to tell, you know, then what better way than to do an homage? I've thought also, uh, in a similar vein about historical fiction and how wonderful it must be to be writing historical fiction. If you're modeling like, uh, you know, true events, you know, some sort of political intrigue or span of time that has the structure kind of built in, you know, where it's going to end, you know, and then it it becomes a question of how do you execute without copying too much and to distinguish your work from the book that you're trying to honor.
1: Right. Having written a historical novel, I would say that writing an homage is more fun because when I wrote the historical novel, I was constantly worried about whether I was being historically accurate. And I'm aware that it's possible to write an historical book that is not accurate and just accept that and own it and tell everyone about it. But for me, because I was trying to reconstruct a history, I didn't know that my parents, to a certain extent, had lived through. I wanted to know as much about it as possible and to be accurate. Real events unfolding in time don't necessarily unfold in the way that a narrative unfolds. And so writing historical work means that you have to cut, nip, and tuck things that really shouldn't be. And I had, I had trouble doing that, it made me uncomfortable. Whereas if you're writing an homage, there's, there are dramatic bones laid out and all you have to do is decide what works and doesn't work with your project. I will say that I've now tried to write two homages and one of them worked, this one, and then the other one I've tried to write has not worked. Why? It didn't work because I was fascinated by a book that has a completely linear structure, a very specific storyline that ends in triumph. I can't tell you what it is because for all I know this is still a live project, in which case it's bad luck to talk about it. <laughs> but it's got a really specific linear structure that ends in triumph. It's it's one of the it's a buildings roman. I was trying to write a Kunstler-Roman, which is the artist's version of the Bildungsroman. And what I discovered as I was doing it is that my story may not have that really clear linear structure, and it may not end in triumph. And if it does not end in triumph, which would be fine, then I need to rethink the structure period. I don't know. I just could feel it. I could tell that the material and the structure didn't work. That the homage that I was trying to write wasn't close enough, and I didn't want it to be so close either. I wanted to be able to write a book that followed a certain structure and did not call to mind exactly the same book. Does oh, that make any sense?
0: It does. And I, you know, I read in my prep that instead of reading Brothers Karamazov and like using it as a desk reference, essentially, as you were writing your story. You instead read Joseph Frank's five-volume Dostoevsky bio, right? Or or at least had it there to sort of flip through. Like, how did it work? In that, how did that, how did that book help you write the novel? That book
1: helped me. I mean, first of all, I did not read all five volumes, but I did read about Dostoevsky's life, and it helped me understand the sensibility that went into writing the Brothers Karamazov. I was also fascinated by the fact that Dostoevsky wanted to write a sequel, that he had planned a sequel, died eight months after writing The Brothers Karamazov with the sequel unwritten. This was interesting to me because it helped me understand the ending of The Brothers Karamazov, which is unresolved in many ways. Well, I was fascinated to read about Dostoevsky's life. For example, when he was a a young man and was sentenced to execution and pardoned at the very moment. You know, I found that completely fascinating. I wondered if it would create a consciousness that was capable of encapsulating or capable of, well, juxtaposing so many emotions, so many extremes in his work. To be at the pit of despair, facing death, and then to be pardoned, it's like the most extreme emotional jump that you could make. And so anything else would feel like merely a pivot.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, never thought about that before. My God, like you can't get more, you can't get more extreme than that from low <gasps> to high.
1: No. And his faith, his belief in Christianity, of course, arose out of his time spent locked up. I, I sometimes fantasize about what his sequel would have been like also because Mitya, the oldest brother, is in prison at the end of the Brothers Karamazov and some of the other characters are conspiring to get him out, you know, to to do a break. What do you call that?
0: An escape? A breakout?
1: Right, a breakout. And I try to imagine what that would be like for Mitya, that he himself Would be pardoned by this breakout. He would suddenly be free, and whether he would be the same after that. He's kind of a thoughtless man in his way. How would that change him? I don't think he would be the same in the sequel that he was in the first book, in the same way that I don't think that Alyosha, the youngest brother, would be the same in Dostoevsky's sequel as he was in the first book. He's very innocent, and yet we know he's about to go out into the world, and I imagine that the sequel would follow him and his life as he became more and more steeped in some kind of sin. You know, he starts the Brothers Karamazov wearing a cassock. He's planning to become a brother or, you know, to, to be deeply involved in this Christian community, a monastery. And I, Assume he's going to have to go as far away from that as possible before he would eventually come back to it, which is what I imagine Dostoevsky would have him do, just based on little hints about the narration in the first book.
0: Now, but did this inform the family Chow? Like, did this thinking and imagining?
1: yeah, Yeah, I just talked to a writer the other night who asked me, If I had written my book with that book by my side because she felt that my book had so many similarities to that book that I couldn't have written it if I hadn't basically had that book, you know, really close by. And the fact is that instead what happened was I internalized the book. I kind of swallowed the book and ate the book and then put the book away and never looked at the book for six years I had to get far enough away from it so that my book turned it into its own thing before I could really finish my book. I had to sort of half forget The Brothers Karamazov. And yet at the same time, in the same way that you have an impression of a person that you once loved, and then you 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 think about them and have feelings, I had those feelings about The Brothers Karamazov. And so I was able to write a book in which there's certain elements that feel that evoke The Brothers Karamazov but is essentially very different.
0: Okay, so let's talk about your book. Your book features uh, a Chinese immigrant family, um uh, last name Chow in a town called Haven, a fictional town I believe called Haven, it's, Wisconsin. It's
1: fictional. I found out there is a town in Wisconsin named Haven, but it's not actually officially a town. It's like some un what do they call that when it's un
0: unincorporated or something that's right
1: it's an unincorporated part of another bigger city so i feel bad that i didn't see it but kind of relieved to do my research i just looked up towns in wisconsin so of course i wouldn't see an unincorporated town name
0: right right well i should i should say uh, that i am a Wisconsin native, born in Milwaukee, and
1: no way. Yes,
0: I am, and I know that you're from Appleton, so we share that this in common.
1: Too wild.
0: Yeah, I love. I have such fond memories of Wisconsin because we moved away when I was in junior high, and I was very well, sad. That's a
1: bad time to move.
0: Yeah, I was sad about it, and I still, I think, I have this idealized version of Wisconsin in my brain that I return to. But it's a lovely state in so many ways. Lovely place.
1: Yes, in so many ways.
0: But it's changed a lot, I will say. (laughs) Uh, Or it feels like it, like from afar, when I read about it, I'm like, that's not what I recall. But then I was also like seven when I was there. So, you know, I wasn't.
1: to To me, the things that have come out in recent years in Wisconsin have always been there. Partly, I know this because I came from a part of Wisconsin that is not close to a big city. It's, it's. A little constellation of smaller cities, the Fox Valley. And my hometown Appleton is the birthplace and burial place of Senator Joseph McCarthy. So there's a very strong streak of, I guess you could say conservatism, political conservatism in Wisconsin, that people just sort of lived and felt. And I remember it growing up in Appleton. And I was also in a strange position in Appleton. I was part of a family that arrived before the town was really diverse in any way. So we integrated Appleton, according to my oldest sister, who's 10 years older than I am and was, you know, 10 years old when she first came to Appleton. From? Well, my parents were in New York. So they moved to Wisconsin because they thought it would be a good place to raise children, but also because there was an institute in Appleton, an institute of paper chemistry affiliated with Lawrence College that gave my dad a green card. He was a chemical engineer, and this was in the paper making industry. So that's why my parents ended up in Wisconsin. And if they hadn't gone to Wisconsin, I don't know if I would be a writer. I like to think I would be. But I don't know what um, what
0: what is it about that? I mean, is it the the being the the family that integrated the mostly like all white town in what it's near Green Bay, right? You're up kind of like north yeah, on that little what do you call it the little thumb of Wisconsin, right?
1: It's forty minutes south of Green Bay. So I did not know this until I published my book and someone was doing research on my hometown and writing an article about me and tried to include this into the article, but it was one of those sunset towns where it was written into the books at some point that black people weren't supposed to live in to stay overnight in town. When I told one of my sisters, this my oldest sister, she pointed out that no one really followed that law and it's true. And her proof, her incontrovertible proof is that the opponents of the Green Bay Packers always stayed in Appleton whenever they came to play right so there were a ton of people <laughs> who were in Appleton, um, but still, it tells you what it was once like, and there's a there's a feeling that I remember from from childhood very much of walking into a room and knowing very clearly that I was unique
0: so in the in the family chow, you have built. Uh, a very fascinating family that is uh, settled in Haven, Wisconsin, and runs a family restaurant called The Fine Chow. And, you know, you talked about the successful but, like, somewhat unhappy experience of writing your previous book, like, which was, I think, a little bit quieter. And in this book, I don't think you would use that descriptor at all, especially when it comes to Leo Chow, the patriarch of this family. He is a a very wonderfully drawn character who must have been fun to write.
1: Yeah, he's a he's a loud tyrannical patriarch, father yeah. of the three sons, and he was he was a lot of fun to write. I mean, yes, it's true that my books before this were relatively quiet and that I was able to stop feeling like I had to write that way when I worked on this project and that was very liberating because I I should
0: interject because I think there is uh, and I think you've said as much that there is a kind of stereotype in immigrant stories that there's like the quiet suffering, uh, immigrant and this, this book and these characters, especially Leo cut against that.
1: The immigrant story I wrote in my first collection, hunger, the stories, I wrote that book in, graduate school. And then in the few years after graduate school, it was published five years after I graduated from the workshop. And I had very much very close to heart, the things I had been told not only by some of my professors, not all of them, but by my classmates who were very much interested in the idea of writing with as few words as possible. Always showing and not telling not using a ton of dialogue, not using adjectives, adverbs, or metaphors. <laughs> I mean, some of this came up. It was an era when people were trying to write like Raymond Carver. Sure. But, you know, and I love Raymond Carver. So, I mean, we're talking the Lish edited Carver, and so the work was understated, and that happened to work together with the kind of quiet suffering that the characters were feeling. In one of my first stories I write, that there's a hole in the house, you know, a, a silence filled with, you know, word, love words or things people don't say and lost objects. You know, just this idea that in this family, there is a black hole, basically things that you don't talk about. And a lot of those things are related to the past. And that, I think, is true of the family where I grew up. The problem was it wasn't a complete picture. And so it showed part of the picture. In order to try to show the complete picture of what our family was like, I had to step away from writing the way that I'd been sort of taught to write, the way that I'd learned to write. Let's put it that way.
0: And to be what? And to be instead louder.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also to have a larger scope in everything I was doing and to swap up the rules of what we were learning at the time regarding point of view and language.
0: You grew up in, I think, what you've described as a noisy family. Yeah. So what does that mean?
1: (laughs) I mean, we were the kind of family where interruption is a form of intimacy. Do you you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Um, I I run into this problem in class, and I have to try to explain it to a lot of my classes that some people are from the kind of family where interruption is a form of intimacy, and other people are from the kind of family where interruption is considered extraordinarily rude. And when people from both of those kinds of families get together in a classroom, there's going to be some confusion about how to communicate. So I always ask the people who grew up in families where interrupting was rude to raise their hand when they needed to talk because otherwise they wouldn't have gotten a word in edgewise on the rest of us who were born in these, into these sort of gab fest families. <laughs> I mean, I have three sisters and I think the one thing my parents really punished was using the words shut up. They thought they were so rude. And so if one of us said shut up, we were, I mean, I guess we were yelling at each other all the time. And at some point, my parents said, "Okay, if you use those words, you have to leave the house and stand outside for five minutes, which in Wisconsin can be really brutal.
0: I was going to say that that could be a severe punishment.
1: (laughs) So we weren't allowed to say shut up. We also weren't allowed to hit each other. But we were very energetic, spirited people. And so there was a lot of yelling. I mean, my siblings and I, my sisters and I.
0: And did your family, I mean, you said your father was an engineer, was there a, a restaurant like restaurant work in the family? We didn't
1: own a restaurant. We owned sort of an informal food service. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it my My dad is a was a was an extrovert and liked to entertain and my mom was a perfectionist, and both of them were interested in food, particularly my father. He had this kind of wonderful memory where he could remember being in Beijing as a child before the Japanese occupation, wandering around the kitchen, wandering through the neighborhood, seeing the ways that people made food and eating a lot of it, trying it. And so when he and my mom landed in Wisconsin in the mid 60s, they really had to sort of remake the food that my dad remembered from scratch because there were no Chinese restaurants, no grocery stores with ingredients. You know, instead, what you had was supermarket ingredients, and at the time, the kinds of food people were eating included, uh, you know, rice, rice, roni,
0: or like yeah.
1: I was thinking egg noodles with Campbell's cream and mushroom soup and ham bits in it. You know, like this is what people were trying out: casseroles, uh, cake from a box. It was a big deal. I remember one recipe cake from a box and then you poke the cake with a fork and then you fill the entire pan with sort of concentrated jello mix that's been, you know, yeah, it's been it's been watered down but it, I mean it's not watered down it water has been added so it's a liquid you fill the cake with this and it creates sort of a jello infused cake <laughs>
0: I'm trying to recall. Um, I mean, I think I think I have some memory of that. I mean, I was there, and I remember I remember eating a lot of like mac and cheese with like a hot dog in it. It's like my childhood. Yes, totally.
1: <laughs> yes, but my parents were my father in particular was a creature of habit, and he had to have Chinese food every night for dinner, and he preferred to have it for lunch as well. I remember him coming home for lunch, for example, from work. He would get in the car, drive. 10 minutes or 15 minutes back, eat for half an hour, get back in the car and drive to work. It's all I knew when I was a kid that dad would show up, he would eat and then he would. Anyway, so my parents would drive to Chicago, which was three hours from Appleton. And they would go to a store and buy soy sauce and other ingredients, sauce in a can, for example, hoisin sauce or whatever, you know, hot pepper sludge, um, hot pepper bean paste, wood ear fungus of different colors and different kinds of tea and whatever they could find. And then they would bring and they would buy a bunch of Chinese vegetables, bring them back to Appleton. And basically we would eat like crazy until the vegetables ran out. And then my parents would start to experiment with the other provisions and the vegetables that were available in Supermarkets. It was the Red Owl, actually. I oh, don't know yeah. if they had one in Milwaukee.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah, I remember the Red Owl.
1: Yeah, they went to the Red Owl and would do things like, you know, come home with well, and they went to the Red Owl and they would come home with, you know, cabbages and iceberg lettuce, and they would stir fry the iceberg lettuce. <laughs> so there was a lot of experimenting in the kitchen, and as I said, my dad was pretty sociable, so he made friends with his colleagues and other. Americans, which is what they, when they said this, they meant white Americans because there were no other Americans at the time in our town. And
0: wait, you mean there were no other, there were no other Chinese Americans?
1: Not, not at the very beginning, according to my sister, but they would, they would bring them home for dinner and try out things that we made on them. And my mom would keep a list of what they would like to eat and what they ate and didn't eat. So eventually there were two other families they both had boys my parents became social with their parents and we became friends with the boys but we were always the only girls in town well for a super long time we were the only asian girls in town
0: so wait when you say your parents became social with their parents you're talking about other chinese americans
1: okay yes yes and we would have them for dinner and they would have us for dinner and we would swap recipes and ingredients and things. And then eventually the world began to open up. My sister says it started, you know, maybe at some point midway through the Vietnam War, maybe closer to nineteen the 70s. People got comfortable with the idea of eating Asian food because the war had brought a familiarity with Asian food that hadn't been there before to certain people. And so the supermarket started carrying ginger and scallions. And when that happened, my parents' lives became very freed up.
0: They don't have to drive three hours to go to the grocery store.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, you you say that and it brings up a good point. I mean, uh, uh, there are certain things in my life that feel you know whatever it happens to be like cultural trends political stuff whatever it is that feel monolithic and immovable and you sort of wish it would change but it won't one of the things that i that i would argue has changed for the better is that the like the palate of the american food consumer yes. has grown so much wider like the availability of good food and interesting food from all over the place like wow that's really changed a lot in my lifetime
1: Yes, it's changed a huge amount. It's gotten way better. And people think nothing of eating salsa on a regular basis. I think it outsells ketchup now.
0: Sure. My grocery list is all over the place. I just wish I was a better cook. I'm a, I'm very limited.
1: <laughs> but you can buy prepared food from other cultures now. Yeah. And people are used to it. People want it. But it, but when my parents were growing up, it wasn't quite like that. And another thing is that we felt we felt close to the people who owned the restaurant in some way because they were some of the only asian people in our town and so if we did go out to eat there was always this sense of i don't know connection to the to the restaurant i don't remember the first chinese restaurant in appleton but uh, for years my parents would go to one specific place in menasha Nina menasha which is you know 20 minutes from where we lived and You know, we we socialized with the owners. My mom taught piano to their kids. It's The restaurant is still there. That restaurant is very nice. It's not like the restaurant in my book.
0: (laughs) Well, but it doesn't seem like, I mean, because of uh, all the different experiences in your youth, perhaps it doesn't seem like you would have had to have done a ton of research. It felt so lived in. You know, the, the restaurant scenes and all the detail in the restaurant parts of your book, it felt... I don't know. It felt like you just knew your stuff. So it's very believable. Kudos.
1: Thanks. I mean, I knew people who did. I went to college and some of my friends' parents had restaurants.
0: I want to ask you a little bit more about the feedback process because you mentioned, you know, you'd done 10 or 11 or 12 drafts or whatever it was. And you start, you get it to a place where you're ready to kind of hand it to some first readers. Yes. And then you have first readers who almost inevitably are going to have different responses to the book. Sure. And I want to ask you about navigating that as a writer because, you know, I think what we hope for as writers when we hand the book off to people to read is for people to kind of tell us what we've done <laughs> in, a, in a way that feels definitive. But sometimes when you get a split reaction, it can make things confusing. Like how, do you, how did you respond to that part of the process and how do you get to a place where you've defined it for yourself in a manner that's satisfying. Like you take it to the finish line.
1: I don't tend to show my long work to readers until I'm pretty far along. But the real factor that influences whether I'm showing it to people is whether I can feel like I know what to do next. So at a certain point, I just sort of lose lose energy. I've done so much work. I've written so many drafts and I can't quite see what to do next. I need feedback. And in this case, I decided because it had taken me so long to write the book and so much of my life had gone by while I was writing it that I should try as hard as possible and show it to people who would be able to see it technically in ways that would help me And I think the first, one of the first people I showed it to was my friend Deborah Spark, who I've taught with at the Warren Wilson College MFA Program for Writers, um, because I knew that she was my friend and that she would tell me what she liked and didn't like in a fairly honest way. And then another person I showed it to is David Haynes, who is the founder of Cambelio, And he's one of the smartest writers I've ever heard lecture about novel structure and I've also co-taught with him and I've listened to him talk about novels in progress he can look at a chapter and see what's going on he can sort of intuit the larger work and I thought I could really use David's help because another thing about David was that he was not wedded or he is not wedded to what I'll just call psychological realism at this moment I'm not sure what it really is I'm sure there's a technical or scholarly term for it But it was what I grew up writing and it had a a whole set of expectations in it that included expectations that you not touch anything resembling genre work. And if I was going to do an homage to the Brothers Kirmatsov, it did have genre work in it. There's a trial in it. And I wanted to hear his thoughts about that. The other thing about David that I think was more open-minded was his interest in the comic novel. So he once gave a lecture that I heard about the comic novel and why don't people write comic novels anymore. And one of the things that he mentioned in this lecture, which is probably 20 years old at this point, was that it was interesting to him that writers who were not from the dominant culture could gain a lot from writing comic work because that angle of irony and observation on the dominant culture is precisely what comic work needs, and you know, as I said, I heard this lecture maybe 20 years ago, and I just tucked it into the back of my brain and wondered why don't we do this? You know.
0: Yeah, that's I'm I'm thinking the exact same thing. Like how well situated somebody who, like as you described yourself, like being an outsider growing yeah. up, like not only is that a person who winds up becoming well disposed to be a writer, but also that's a that's a great position from which to be a comic writer. You know, the the, yes. the the comic character is often an outsider as well.
1: Yes. I thought a lot about David's lecture over the years, and I thought, David will be the person who can read this. And he did. And I guess at that point, Deborah was super helpful just because I'd never shown it to anyone. She was the first person I showed it to. And then she gave me some really clear feedback that helped me see what I was doing. I disagreed with her feedback about certain things. She did not like the plot elements that came into the book and she really liked James and his coming of age. So here's what happens if you end up encountering a reader who wants the book to be something and you're sort of secretly wanting it to go the other direction is it helps you see exactly where the lines are. Like I was able to see after Deborah talked to me about it, that the novel was sort of hanging there in between being a coming of age book about a son of immigrants and being a book about the death of the father and the trial of the oldest son. And I you know, from the beginning had wanted it to be about the death of the father and the trial of the oldest son. And I had no idea what I would have done if I had axed that part of the plot, for example. So actually, some of the things that people like were things that I then began to understand I would have to get rid of, but I couldn't exactly see where or how for a long time. David was, it was just so nice to have him look at it and talk about it that that helped me along. But I don't know if, I ended up taking a lot of his advice. For example, he didn't like, or he thought that Elf the Dog could probably go, but I was like super fond of Elf the Dog. And not only that, but Elf the Dog plays majorly into the second half. But what happened was because David thought Elf the Dog should go, and I wanted to include and keep Elf the Dog, I understood that he needed more of a role in the book than he had. Like his role at the time was expositional. James And, and David could see that immediately. He's like, the reason you have him in there is because James is following him around. And that way we get to, you know, see everyone. But what role does Elf the dog have in the rest of the book? He didn't ask that question. I had to ask it. Do you see what I mean? Sure. He said, you should get rid of this dog. It's not necessary. And I thought, how can I make it more necessary? Right. And in the end, it's like very crucial to the book.
0: Yeah, well I mean no, that's a that's a great point that sometimes you know you have these conversations that don't pay, like play out the way you might have hoped or expected or you get feedback that you disagree with but just the you know just by virtue of having the conversation it sparks something in you that leads you to sort of solve your own problems.
1: Right, you see how other people are reading it and you think, "Oh, I don't know if I want it to be read that way. I'm going to have to do something to tweak it. And so I worked on it for a couple more months after that, trying to address the issues that had come up. And then I showed it to like two more people.
0: Well, I got a feel. Okay. You're the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop. I cannot imagine being in a a better spot to have really good people look at your work, right? You're surrounded by nothing but gifted writers right yes
1: i am surrounded by nothing but gifted writers and what, but one of my deep concerns was that i didn't want to take advantage of anybody
0: right but well, it's a big ask
1: yeah Maybe. i had to, it, i had to ask people who i felt like were actually my friends or who with whom i'd had conversation about the work in a constructive way like jess for example jess walter famous brilliant writer i really hesitated to ask him but when he was here teaching for a semester, we would get lunch and I just really had conversations with him about writing that felt so comfortable and he was so smart. And I thought, okay, I'm going to just gird my loins and ask him. He's not really our employee now. He's working on his own. He's our former visiting faculty person. If he wants to say no, he can say no. And actually he was really kind and he said he would do it. And I am super grateful to him because he could really see a vision for sort of loosening up the narrative perspective.
0: I feel like his work does such a great job of balancing between like, like more literary concerns and having such a great sense of the reader.
1: Yes. Yes. Although that's not what he talked about with me. That's what's so interesting. He talked to me about point of view. It was it was really interesting. I mean, I didn't know what to expect when I showed it to him, so it was kind of delightful to hear what he thought. It was really helpful. And another person – well, so all of these people were super helpful. And, and then I have a group of friends who I've been showing my work to since I was in graduate school, and I also showed it to them. Um, they basically dragged me through – my first novel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what friends are for, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I, my big problem is that I get so, dis, not discouraged exactly, but I get stuck and I can't see what I'm doing and I need someone to talk to about it. But the big thing that I have never do is I don't show work to people until I pretty much got, I don't know, maybe 75% of it done. And by that, I mean, I mean 75% in a full way not just in terms of like how many pages i have or anything like before i showed it to anybody i had reached a point where it was 500 pages and then i started hacking away at it and cut it way down to like 400 pages 420 pages maybe 400 then i it was 400 when i showed it to deborah and by the time bennett was done with it it was maybe 300 and 50 pages. Or maybe I cut it down even more than that after I talked to him. And then and then I built it back up because of other suggestions. But honestly, I realized that it's so important for writers to read each other's work. Yeah, I'm so grateful to so many people who helped me while I was writing this book. Because I was going through a pretty, pretty rocky time in life, like during the number of years, how many was it? Like the total, 2005, so during the years between 2005 and 2020, the following things happened. I moved to Iowa City, I took up a very demanding job that I didn't have very much experience with when I first started, so I had to learn how to do it and still I'm learning. I'm not naturally suited to being the director of a program because I'm not an extrovert and I don't really have an administrative brain. So I had to do that and then had a child and thank goodness I have an incredibly supportive husband who was like very, I don't know, patient and generous. And then just, you know, went through a bunch of transitions at work, like various faculty retired. We had to hire new faculty. We're always worried about trying to support the students. So always trying to raise money to support the students, Uh, always trying to explain to the academic administration and bureaucracy like what it is we do because we're kind of different from a lot of other academic departments and our needs are different.
0: That surprises me to hear because the Iowa Writers Workshop as it lives in my imagination is like so well-defined, you know? Like, what do you mean, what do we do? We churn out the... (laughs) the next generation of great american writers you know like it's a, it's a laboratory for people to come hide out and and get better right
1: that's exactly what it is that's exactly what it is but i think we've been through maybe 5 deans in the last 7 years something crazy like that you know every time somebody new comes they have their own field you know one of my first dean the first dean when i was here was a zoologist we've had a mathematician You know, we've just had a lot of different people. And so you have to explain what we do to them in in various ways because our needs are really specific and they are different from other departments' needs. But all of these things happen. Like my mom died in 2014, my dad died in 2020, just a lot of stuff. And when I think through it, I feel like finishing this book was the major accomplishment of my middle age. So I'm really grateful to everyone for helping me do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, talk about it. You have a lot going on, like personally and professionally. Yeah. And just like work-life balance, you know, as being a parent, working, and especially working at the intersection of other writers and their ambitions and their needs. Like you're in charge of all that. And I'm sure you're inundated with it every day. And there's a lot of satisfaction to be gained from helping uh, you know, yes. other, other writers realize their ambitions and everything else, but to then in the midst of all that, and you're a mom, you know, so you're, <laughs> you're tending to your uh, child's ambitions and, you know, all of, uh, I think it's a daughter, right? Yes. I, I read that somewhere. So like her needs, I know, you know, all that goes into that as well to, to find the time and the energy necessary to get your own book done amidst all that, like, Good grief. Like, when do you write? Do you have to get up at, like, four in the morning or something? Or how do, how do you do it?
1: So, when I first... So, as I think I mentioned, there's a there was a period of several years where I wasn't writing at all. It was probably between the publication of All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost and 2014. So, I didn't get work done at that time. And in 2014, I decided I'm just gonna wake up every morning at five o'clock or five thirty and I'm gonna work for an hour or two before my daughter wakes up because she had this wonderful habit of sleeping until peacefully until around seven or seven fifteen every day. And I couldn't get it together to see the whole book in my mind because I had so many things distracting me. So I would I decided I would just work on small parts. I think there there's for example a, a riff in the book where the father uses a lot of words with, I mean, he uses a lot of expressions that have the word dog in them.
0: Oh, yeah, I love that.
1: I wrote that in 2014. It was just one of those situations where I can't write today, or I can't think today, so I'll sit down and I'll just write something that gives me pleasure. So what happened was the workshop needed to hire new faculty, and we also had a new person helping with computer work, administrative computer work, And that was their job. But the bureaucracy is so complicated. And at one point, I got a sort of email from my boss, the dean, the associate dean, and he called me in and said, Look, you have to do this stuff. Like the person who's doing it has never done it before. And you just have to run this search completely by yourself. Like you have to do the paperwork. And it was such an important search for me. And I knew it was important for him, too, because he loved faculty searches and he loved the whole process of, you know, the faculty world. And I had to put aside what I was doing. And it was a wonderful search. We ended up with a bunch of really wonderful faculty. The problem was I didn't get any more work done that year. Like it just threw me off. It's really hard to stay on track for me, sure, I'm not one of these people who can just sit down and write, and I've always been slow so then, in two thousand and fifteen, I started again trying to work and that fall, I had a semester off, and I went to McDowell. It was very helpful at that time, though, I was still not committed to this project because I didn't have the confidence to believe I could do it, and it wasn't until probably two thousand and sixteen that i that I got the confidence. And this happened because I read Margot Livesey's essay on the homage where she said that she did not read Jane Eyre when she was writing The Flight of Gemma Hardy. And I thought, this is my problem. I need to just forget the Brothers Karamazov. So I did and then I was able to sort of see what I was doing as its own thing and the characters began to round out in ways that had nothing to do with the Brothers Karamazov. And I realized that I was not writing a close homage It just isn't isn't close in so many different ways. And then that was the point where I was able to really get going on the book, and it became its own thing.
0: Well, uh, congratulations on it. And just congratulations on seeing it through. Like, that resonates with me. I've spent a long time writing a book, and I know (laughs) the ups and downs of that and how – You can go through long spells where you think even like, well, this isn't going to happen.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Like books, it's almost like books die. They die and then are resuscitated, you know?
1: Yeah. Is this the book that's coming out?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's great. How long did it take you?
0: Like a decade, basically.
1: Yes. I can completely relate to this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, but it's like there's a lesson in it. There's a lesson in the the persistence and seeing it through and eventually getting there.
1: Yes. Yes. Have you tried going to residencies?
0: No, but I read when I was prepping eagerly about your experiences. And when I talk to people on this show who do them, I'm always keen to know more, but it sounds delightful. And I think what I'm thinking, because I'm kind of a slow writer too, is like you get two weeks or whatever it is, maybe more, but usually it's like two weeks, right?
1: No, no. You can go for, I mean of course you can't get away right the first one I did was two weeks it was at Yaddo and I went for 13 days I mean the first one I did after Ty was born she was seven and I went away for 13 days and I spent the first maybe eight days just banging my head on the wall and watching like really bad videos on YouTube and doing nothing and feeling (laughs) horrible and then somehow I just managed in the last five days to do months worth of work and that's sort of how it's always been for me I I get overwhelmed at home. I go to a residency. I futz around feeling frustrated. Then I break through and start working incredibly hard. Once at one of these places, um, a composer told me that he gets six months work done in the four weeks that he's at this place every year. And I mean, I just remembered that and thought you need to keep coming back to these places. And I basically worked it out so that in the last four or five years of writing this, I probably went to two residencies a year, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, And my, again, as I said, I have this really wonderful husband who basically allowed me to do this. And I would get a ton done while I was at the residency, come home and work in the mornings before school or like little bits of time that I had. And I was able to keep going because I'd had such a push from the residency. And then I would go, and then I would lose momentum. I would go back to the residency. Do you know what I mean? Sure,
0: yeah, it's like a steroidal, like concentrated like creative experience, you know it,
1: if, it if... really is it it was really helpful. I could never have thought through this book or written it if I hadn't had that help
0: before I let you go, I want to ask you like how do you get into the Iowa Writers Workshop? Oh. There have to there have to be people listening who are like just tell me the secret. What I guess you just oh. have to write something really good and send it in, right?
1: Well, it's really about your manuscript. We look through a ton of manuscripts every year and and then the faculty vote on them. And every year there are a lot of people who are really good. So it's I'm sure every year we fail to admit someone who is you know wildly talented and we just do the best we can, but we don't really look at anything except for the manuscript.
0: Why? Why would you? Right? I mean, the manuscripts you know, there a are things.
1: Sometimes borderline cases, in which case we'll look at their application, because we'll have like several borderline people, and we'll have to figure out like who to choose. But I mean, I think every program has that situation.
0: Sure, sure. So is that a is that a Kurt Vonnegut drawing that I'm seeing in the wall in the background?
1: Yes, actually, um, here I'll show it to you. Oh, cool. It's his it's his drawing of Kilgore Trout. Right. Yeah, we keep it on the wall in here.
0: Cuz okay. he 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 taught at the workshop famously in yeah. like what, the 60s or
1: Can you I can't tell if you can see it.
0: Oh, I can see it. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Well, it says on it, Dear Frank Conroy, maybe you can find space in the workshop to hang this as my acknowledgement of My spiritual debt to Iowa City, which was the major epiphany of my entire existence. Cheers. Wow. I know. It's amazing. That's so cool. It's really amazing. Yeah. I mean, what I was thinking was that it's really hard to be a writer. It takes so much energy. And actually, it's so hard because people don't really care whether you produce work or not. Because there's so many other needs in the world and so really you have to be the one to care the most but if you look for help people will help you like that's been the major lesson of this particular novel for me there are places and people who can help in communities where you can get help and you can feel the gratefulness of Kurt Vonnegut who was here in Iowa City when he wrote Slaughterhouse-Five and I think um, well, finished Slaughterhouse-Five. He had started it, but as we all know, writing a novel is you know, a whole process. It's a, a long experience. And, well, he- and, and that
0: one too. I mean, Slaughterhouse-Five, maybe of all of his books, was the longest and most difficult slog I would have to... I mean, he writes about it in the book itself. I mean, that was a, a tough one for him.
1: Right. But he, he managed to get it done, and you know, he was here in this space, which I've always found an ex- extremely nurturing space in the Midwest, nurturing to writers
0: what iowa, iowa city the town Iowa
1: city it's a really special place
0: i gotta i've never been i gotta come yeah hey, uh, you have to come you know check it out and...
1: yeah you should definitely come and check it out At just certain... don't come in the winter
0: <laughs> i want to come in, i mean i'm a midwestern guy by birth so i know i want to come in like october that's the time to be in the midwest i feel like right
1: it's really wonderful yeah just don't come on a friday night
0: <laughs> why <laughs>
1: Oh, it's foot. If it's football, it's a football weekend. Oh, it's, right. It's it really crowded around here, and there's a lot of debauchery. Well, I don't mind debauchery. I can well, be. I guess I yeah, <laughs> I mean, debauchery sound really bad. My mouth is full of it, but but I don't know. It can get a little overwhelming.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The football thing, but yeah, uh, it is a delight to meet you and to talk with you. And congrats on your wonderful book. I'm glad that we got to spotlight it in the book club and. I wish you, like, many, like, lovely residencies, you know? And, like, I think that's, like, a really good place to end and a good thing to underline is that for people who are struggling with work-life balance as authors, which is basically all of us, yeah, there is help out there. And you can get a lot done in a concentrated period of time if you simply have the ability to concentrate, <laughs> uh, you know, and you take advantage of it, of course. But, like... I don't know. I'm taking that away from this conversation. I'm going to have to try that out because I'm working on a new on a new book and cool. str- struggling to find the time. And I'm just like, how is this ever going to get done? And maybe what I need to do is, you know, decamp to uh, Yado.
1: Well, sometimes it seems impossible. Like you think I could never do that. I could never leave my life. But I think it's possible. I think if you just move one rock at a time, you find a path and you can do it
0: great to meet you great talking with you congratulations and best of luck to you with all that you have going on
1: thanks thanks
0: all right guys there you go that is Lan Samantha Chang her new novel is called The Family Chow available now from W.W. Norton and Company it is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club wonderful to meet her and to talk with her Again, the novel is called The Family Chow. Go get your copy immediately. If you would like to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, just go to the nervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. The entire archive, nearly 800 episodes and counting, all available to you free of charge. It's a listener-supported show, so... If you listen regularly, if you like this program, if you get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com/otherpplpod. That's patreon p a t r e o n.com/otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. You know how Patreon works. $1 a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, and so on. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard. I will sing you happy birthday on your birthday. I'm not kidding. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have thoughts on the show or thoughts on something else and you want to share those with me, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It too is free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. Be sure to sign up for the Brad slash Other People weekly email newsletter. You can do that at BradListy.com. You can do that at OtherPPL.com. Just look in the left sidebar for the email newsletter link. All right? Oh, and if you want to pre order my book, you can do that too bradlisty.com Come on Please <laughs>